0: Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter. Pretty good Bible studies. In this audio, I'm going to cover Second Corinthians chapter seven, verses one through sixteen, the entire chapter. I'm going to call this section "The Corinthians Repent" because they do, and Paul's very happy about it. The ESV has calls it Paul's joy. It's joy because the Corinthians repent of all their many sins, and the main thing they repent of is the brother of, of not doing church discipline on the man who was living with his stepmother our context is this in chapter six paul had talked about the corinthians being a temple of the holy of of god a temple of god and that in that temple you don't put idols in there and you also you need to be sanctified because we're god's temple the corinthians were god's temple and some of their activities were not very sanctified including this situation with the Man living with his stepmother. So that's our context. So we start now in Second Corinthians 7 verse 1. Therefore, dear friends, since we have such promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and spirit, completing our sanctification in the fear of God. So Paul continues here, here with his exhortations to sanctification. He says, Therefore, since we have such promises, therefore is why is it therefore? Well the reference is to Second Corinthians six verses seventeen through eighteen at the end of the chapter. Paul says this in verse seventeen, Second Corinthians six, Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So Paul is saying if you want to be God's children, you need to be clean, you need to be sanctified. Therefore, if you have the promise of God being your father, cleanse yourself so you can go into his temple. Let us cleanse ourselves. Sanctification, completing our sanctification in the fear of God, Paul says. Sanctification, of course, means holiness. It's another word for holiness. Some other scriptures, Paul tells the Thessalonians in First Thessalonians 4, 7, For God has not called us to impurity, but to sanctification. Our calling is to be holy, to be sanctified. 1 John 3, 3, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. We have a hope in him. And Jesus, when you do that, you purify yourself, which means you make yourself clean. Now, Paul says, let us cleanse ourselves to the Corinthians here in chapter 7 verse 1 of 2nd Corinthians he says let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and spirit the flesh consists of outward acts of sin as John Gill says adultery adultery fornication incest sodomy murder drunkenness revelation all the typical things that Americans do and also cleanse yourself of impurities of the spirit, and that would be internal thoughts, not external actions, but internal thoughts. For example, as John Gill says, evil thoughts, lust, pride, malice, envy, covetousness, typical sins of mankind. Paul says, get rid of them, folks, and he wouldn't be exhorting them to get rid of them if he didn't think it was possible. Of course, it's through killing the deeds of the flesh through the Holy Spirit is how it is possible as you live your life with Christ in you, the hope of glory, living his life out in you, which thus conforms your life to his holy life. Now, notice that Paul says, cleanse your, clean, let's cleanse ourselves, completing our sanctification. Completing is a progressive tense form there. Sanctification is not a point in time thing. It's something that is a process. It takes a while. It doesn't happen all at once. Now, that I have mentioned that Paul was mentioning that the temple needed to be cleansed in the previous chapter of the Corinthian church. Let me read you some of those verses. 2 Corinthians 6.1 Working together with him, we also appeal to you, don't receive God's grace in vain. And what he means is, is don't get saved and then don't get sanctified thereafter. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be mismatched with unbelievers. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? Don't hang around with dark darkness. 2 Corinthians six seventeen. Therefore come out from among them, among all those pagans around you, and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean, unclean thing, and I will welcome you. We go to verse 2, 2 Corinthians 7. Paul continues, Accept us. We have wronged no one, corrupted no one, defrauded no one. So accept us. Again, Paul has spent the whole letter here trying to defend himself against these false teachers or these pagan teachers or these Judaizers, whoever it was, these false apostles, whoever it was, the super apostles, whoever it was that was opposing him in Corinth, they're telling the Corinthians, don't accept Paul as your father, your spiritual father, and don't accept him as an apostle. And Paul is saying, no, no, accept us. Why? Why? because we have wronged no one, corrupted no one, defrauded no one. Of course, the implication is is that his opponents have wronged the Corinthians. They have corrupted the Corinthians. They have defrauded the Corinthians. The NIV study Bible says it's ironic that the false teachers were guilty of everything they charged Paul with. I don't know if we can prove that precisely that the false teachers were doing all that stuff, but I think the implication that Paul's making is pretty clear. Now, when he says, "Accept us, Paul could be asking the Corinthians to receive Paul into their affections, or he could be saying, "Accept us, Timothy and Paul and other teachers. Accept us as your apostles and teachers. Either or it could be both. Accept us into your affections, or accept us in, in, as far as our ministry is concerned. That us there could be the editorial we, because Paul is often talking about himself personally as he goes through this letter, but he could be referring to Paul and Timothy because the salutation of 2 Corinthians included Timothy in the greeting in the very first verse of the book. We go to 2 Corinthians 7, verse 3. I don't say this to condemn you, for I have already said that you are in our hearts to live together and to die together. Now, Paul has just told them to sanctify themselves, get rid of their impurities. And, you know, people can get sensitive about being told they're sinners. Nobody takes that very well, and Paul is being very careful here. Hey, I'm not saying this to condemn you guys. John Gill says the Corinthians might have felt that Paul was accusing them of gross unsanctification, if I can use that word. Verse 2 might have made the Corinthians think that Paul was accusing them of wronging, corrupting, and defrauding them, as John Gill says. Verse 2 says, we have wronged no one, corrupted no one, defrauded no one. And the Corinthians might say, oh, you, you mean you're saying we wronged you, Paul? We corrupted you, Paul? We defrauded you, Paul? And Paul's saying, no, no, I'm not saying this to condemn you. If anybody's to be condemned, it's the false apostles, not the Corinthians themselves. But they could have been sensitive, so Paul is trying to be careful. And he says, I don't say this to condemn you in verse three, second Second Corinthians seven, because he says, For I've already said that you are in our hearts to live together and to die together. Already said where? Second Corinthians two, verse four. For I wrote to you with many tears out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart, not that you should be hurt, but that you should know the abundant love I have for you. Again it's Purpose is not to beat them over the head. His purpose is for them to repent. And he shows them he loves them every step of the way. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 2. You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, recognized and read by everyone. So Paul says that the Corinthians are in his hearts; They're written on his heart. So he's, he's showing that he loves them. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 11 through 13. We have spoken openly to you, Corinthians. Our heart has been opened wide. You are not limited by us, but you are limited by your own affections. I speak as to my children as a proper response. You should also be open to us. So Paul is saying, hey, you're my children. I've spoken openly to you without hypocrisy. Our heart is wide. You are not limited by us. In other words, we're not trying to constrain, to make you constrained in our affections for you. You're not limited in our affections for you we got plenty of love for you. So, Paul is trying to make it easy on them. And of course, they've already repented. Paul already knows they repented when he sent this letter. But he's still being careful to, to say nice things about them. When he says that you are in our hearts, he also said the Philippian church was in his heart. Philippians 1.7. It is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart. Paul was concerned about his churches. He loved his churches. You know, we tend to think that Paul's just starting churches, increasing the gospel, making the numbers bigger. He had personal relationships with the churches he started, and he cared about them deeply. So much, though, that he says that he had fears without and fears within for the Corinthians, as as we'll see later. And he was, you know, sleepless nights, concerned with his babies, his spiritual babies. Now, Paul actually says in verse 3 that you're in our hearts to live together with me in my heart, but also to die together. In other words, hey, if you die, Corinthians, I want to die with you. Adam Clark says of that, There never was a church less worthy of such affections from an apostle. Yeah, I guess he's right about that. Second Corinthians 7 verse 4, Paul continues, I have great confidence in you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with encouragement. I am overcome with joy in all our affliction. Now Paul is now picking up where he left off at 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 13. Let me read verses 12 and 13 of the second chapter of Second Corinthians. When I came to Troyas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Now if you recall, Paul was so upset about having to write First Corinthians and chastise the Corinthians. And then he probably made a short visit, the scholars speculate, across the Aegean. And that was a painful visit. And finally he says, well, I'm not going to go back and do that again. I'm going to go up to Troas and see if Titus has come back from his visit at Corinth. And maybe he's got some good news for me. And so then at that verse, as he talked about going up to Macedonia, he completely broke off talking about his travel plans and his plans to visit Titus. And now he's come back to it, as we'll see here in the the next verse of 2 Corinthians 7, 5. But at any rate, he was worried about Titus coming back and giving good news. And now he's got the good news. He says, I am filled with encouragement. That's because Titus told him the good news. Now he's happy. He says, I'm overcome with joy and all our afflictions. Paul often connects joy and afflictions, which is a strange thing because Typically, afflictions make people not joyous. I have a hard time being joyous when things aren't going good. But Paul got some good news in the midst of all the bad news. The good news came from Titus. What were some of the afflictions? Well, he's mentioned them a lot in 2 Corinthians. The reason he does is because he's trying to show how much he cared for the Corinthians and trying to to cement his authority as an apostle. 2 Corinthians 4, 7-8. Now, we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are pressured in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. 2 Corinthians 6, 4-5 through 5. But as God's ministers, we commend ourselves in everything by great endurance, by afflictions, by hardship, by difficulties, by beatings, by imprisonments, by riots, by labors, by sleepless nights, by times of hunger. And then Second 2 Corinthians 7, 5, which is our very next verse... Paul says, in fact, when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest. Instead, we were troubled in every way. Conflicts on the outside, fears on the inside. That's because he's worried about the Corinthians. Remember, he had left Ephesus. Instead of sailing straight across the Aegean to Corinth, he went north along the western coast of Anatolia up to Troas, which is where the old city of Troy was. He's looking for Titus, who is coming back from Corinth. He couldn't find him, and so then he... When he couldn't find him, he had no rest. He had conflicts on the outside and fears on the inside. I don't know what those conflicts were. Paul was always in conflict. But his troubles about the Corinthians were pretty straightforward. Had those false teachers succeeded in seducing the Corinthians yet? Because if they had, the whole church would be up in smoke. And they were the first fruits of Achaia, if you recall. There was no church in Athens. Corinth was the beachhead. And if they went up in smoke, it would be a disaster. Now, I said I didn't know particularly what conflicts on the outside Paul was talking about here. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point out that Paul had a lot of opposition on the outside, overt opposition from Jews who did not believe and who were constantly dragging him, kicking him out of synagogues and dragging him before magistrates. He had oppositions from pagans such as Athens and other pagan philosophers that he mentioned. he, He referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And also false brother and people who were in the church, super apostles. They thought they were big-shot apostles and claiming to be Christians. And they might have been Christians who were just greedy, or they might have been people masquerading as Christians. I don't know, but he had a lot of conflict from, from people. Conflicts on the outside and worries on the inside. We go to Second Corinthians 7, verses 6 through 7. But God, who comforts the humble, comforted us by the arrival of Titus, and not only by his arrival, but also by the comfort he received from you. He told us about your deep longing, your sorrow, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. God comforts the humble, Paul says, the humble in spirit or the humble in circumstances. It could be either one or it could be both, because usually when you're humble in circumstances, you tend to be humble in spirit. Not necessarily, but often. Paul is humble in circumstances. He was humble in spirit, despite all the boasting he had done about his apostleship. Listen, time you see a, a Christian leader start boasting a little bit, you better be real careful. Because there is nothing worse than spiritual pride of pride held by somebody in a position of high ecclesiastical authority. Nothing worse than that. Nothing. But anyway, we have a promise that God comforts the humble. Remember that you get humble, humble yourself before the hand of the Lord. He'll hear hear your prayer. As it says in James, I believe it says, humble yourself. All right, Paul is comforted by the rival of Titus, but not also by the rival, but also by by the arrival of Titus, but also by the words of by the comfort that the Corinthians had given Titus, which Titus then relayed to Paul. So he was glad to see Titus, but he was also glad to get good news about Corinth. So he got two doses of good news there. Paul was close to Titus. Titus was a a close co-worker with Paul. Remember, Paul sent Titus to set in order the churches on Crete, for example. He took him with Jerusalem at the end of the third journey, for example. Titus told Paul about your deep longing, longing for what to see Paul, probably your sorrow, why for not for doing all the bad things that you did in the, in the in, that are mentioned in First Corinthians, you abused the Lord's Supper, you abused the spiritual gifts, you were suing each other, you denied the resurrection of the dead, or at least you tolerated those who did. You divided up into factions, and you gave too much credence to worldly philosophical wisdom and rhetorical power. That's basically it. Oh, and also you didn't exercise church discipline against the brother sleeping with his stepmother. And that's probably what Paul is talking about here. The sorrow over having allowed that horrible sin to go on in the church. That's probably in particular what Paul's talking about. We'll see as we go through. It it sounds like that. And last of all, Paul is comforted by by the Corinthians' zeal for Paul, how much they loved him now and how much they accepted him now as opposed to before. Second Corinthians seven verse eight. For even if I grieved you with my letter, I do not regret it. Even though I did regret it, since I saw that the letter grieved you, yet only for a little while. Now he sent them. Well, first, what letter is it? Well, almost every commentator I read said it was First Corinthians. I wondered why it couldn't. It might not have been that previous severe letter that he wrote. None of the commentators seem to think so, and it's probably because of the reference to the sending the man who was living with his stepmother. That's probably why. I don't know that, but I do know that most of the commentators say that this letter that Paul is referring to here is 1 Corinthians, and so I'm going to assume it here. So even if I grieved you with my letter, and after all, he just chastised them for all those sins I just mentioned, and that would probably make them feel very sad, Paul says, I don't regret it. Why does he not regret it? He had to do it. He had to do it. I mean, you know, faithful of the wounds of a friend, you got to tell people the truth if they're engaged in activity that's going to destroy them. Just as you would tell, you might grieve your kid if they're out there doing drugs, but you tell them, "I'm sorry, you're going to kill yourself." I'm going to tell you the bad news right now. Now, some people say that Paul, after he sent the letter, he regretted he regretted the grief that it caused the Corinthians. He didn't regret sending the letter because it chastised him, but he regretted the fact that it made the Corinthians sad. And so, some people say, "Well, wait a minute. This was a letter inspired by God. How could Paul be upset about its effect on the Corinthians if it was inspired by God?" Why would he be grieved over writing an inspired letter? Uh, That's an interesting question. I looked at the Cambridge Commentary for Bibles and Schools, and they had the very simple remark, inspiration does not turn a man into a passive machine. Paul still had emotions, of course. Now Paul said he regretted that the letter grieved them, but the grief only lasted for a little while. That's because they repented. They had to get 1 Corinthians from Paul, then they had to have the painful visit from Paul, Then they had to have the severe letter from Paul, but finally they repented. He says a little while. Sounds like a long while to me, but I guess in the long run scheme of things, it was for a little while they repented of their sins. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 9, Now I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. See, that's what he's rejoicing about is the repentance, not about the pain that accompanied the repentance. For you were grieved as God willed, so that you didn't repent any so that you did not experience any loss from us. John Gill says, There is joy in heaven among the angels at the repentance of a sinner. And note that this is church discipline again, if assuming it's the dealing with the man who was sleeping with his stepmother. Apparently, the Corinthian church had disciplined that man, and so they had repented in their lack of church discipline. They repented, and they were grieved because of their lack of church discipline. But... The ultimate goal of church discipline is restoration, and that's what they did. Your grief led to repentance, not only led to the repentance of the Corinthians, but led to the repentance of the man sleeping with his stepmother. Paul finishes up the verse by saying that their godly grief and their godly repentance was such that the Corinthians did not experience any loss from us, from Paul. In other words, well there's some options as what this can mean there was no emotional loss to the Corinthian's personally their grief was over so there was no no loss came from us as a result of our severe as, as a result of our admonishments and chastisements you didn't experience any loss because of that or it could mean there was no loss to the Corinthian church because the incestuous man was restored as John Gill says so we tell you to discipline the man but you didn't you didn't lose anything you disciplined him, and he came back and repented so that's more good news from Paul's point of view. Now notice that Paul says your grief led to repentance. It's possible for people to be grieved over a chastisement but still continue on in the sin. That is possible. As Adam Clark says, one can grieve but not repent, which is unfortunate. But not in this case, the Corinthians repented. Second Corinthians 7 verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance not to be regretted and leading to salvation, but worldly grief produces death. So here's two kinds of grief, godly and worldly. Godly grief is real God-centered sorrow over the wickedness of sin, as the NIV Study Bible puts it. Worldly grief is self-centered grief over the painful consequences of sin, as the NIV Study Bible puts it. In other words, worldly grief is you're sorry you got caught. Godly grief is you're sorry you sinned against God. That's a distinction I think most Christians know the difference in those two things. Worldly grief produces death because you're sorry you got caught, but you didn't repent before God, so you're still dying in your sins. So the lesson there is clear. We need to repent before God when we sin. 2 Corinthians 7.11 For consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, has produced in you. What a desire to clear yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What deep longing. What zeal. What justice in every way you showed yourselves to be pure in this matter." Now, what matter? Well, John Gill says it's the removing of the incestuous brother, the guy living with his stepmother, and I think Gill's probably right here, and we're going to assume he's right. The Corinthians showed themselves to be pure by showing much diligence. In other words, they hopped right to it when they got Paul's letter, the first Corinthians, and they said, okay, we're going to kick this guy out of the church because of his sin, and we're going to try to get him to repent first, and then we're going to kick him out if he doesn't. And they and they probably did. I, well, we don't know. Let's put it this way: the guy finally repented. I don't know if they actually had to kick him out, but they were they were supposed to. They were getting ready to, and so they did it. And this very thing, this grieving, is God's will. This grieving over the sin of the brother of the sin in the church produced a desire to clear themselves. How? Well, to repent of all the other sins that we've mentioned, but also to get rid of this by disciplining the incestuous man, as John Gill says, and said, and Paul says the Corinthians did this with indignation. Not against the incestuous man, but against his sin. In other words, John Gill says that the Corinthians hated the sin, but they didn't hate the sinner. What fear, that would be the fear of God, the fear of his righteous judgment if they had continued not to discipline the sinner. What deep longing, what kind of longing? Well, it could be longing to see the apostle or longing to set things right in their church or both. What zeal, the Corinthians did this for God and his glory. What justice? Well, they carried out justice against the incestuous man. They said, repent or get out. First, Second Corinthians 7, verse 12. So even though I wrote to you, it was not because of the one who did wrong or because of the one who was wronged. And again, this is probably referring to the man living with his stepmother. I wrote to you in order that your diligence for us might be made plain to you in the sight of God. In other words, it wasn't just because of the moral failure in the church that I was writing about. I was writing about about the moral failure in the church so that you could be a better church and so that you could be diligent for us that you would accept us as your apostle. Now, Paul asking the Corinthians to be diligent for him might sound like that's a little bit selfish. It might sound like Paul is being concerned selfishly and personally for his own authority. Well, no, Gill and Clark say that rather Paul was concerned for the Corinthian church at large. And I say this, it's not selfish for a father to ask obedience of his children. He wanted the church to fly right. He didn't want the church to be destroyed. And so when he says diligence for us, he means diligence for me as an apostle so that my church would be established in the eyes of God. And that's a good thing for everybody. So he's not being selfish here at all. And he wants the Corinthians to publicly display their diligence for Paul that it might be made plain to them so that they themselves could see that they respect their apostle Paul, their spiritual father. But again, it's for their good as well as for Paul's. Now he says, I did not write to you because of the one who did wrong, the man living in sin. Now, we need to be careful here. The, the Greek is never uses the word merely. I don't know why. But John Gill points out it's this. I wrote to you not merely because of the one who did wrong. In other words, not only because of the one who did wrong. I had other reasons for writing. But that doesn't mean he didn't have concern for the one who did wrong, for the incestuous man. Of course, he wanted to get the man restored and repented. In fact, he's, later on, he's going to say, hey, you've got to be careful. He's going to be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. So was concerned about the man. So it's not merely because of, of that man. It's not merely because of the one who was wronged. Who's that? Probably the father whose wife was getting fornicated with by his own son. Probably. But now let's talk about that. The phrasing, well, first of all, we need to make clear that when we read that passage in 1 Corinthians 5, it's, it says the man who is living with his father's wife. I mean that could have been his own mother but that that really is bad. I don't think that's what it is. It's, it's and he would have said mother. Paul would have said mother so when he says father's wife that awful that sounds like a stepmother. So we're going to assume that. But the question is is was that the father who was married to the woman who was sleeping with the son was that father alive at the time of the incest? Well, it's not clear. I say there's a good chance the father was dead because it would be difficult to sleep with a if, well, your father's wife, if your father's still alive, well, I mean, you know, that's, that's so bad, you'd think there'd be some bloodshed over that. but And second, and when you read this verse, it says, I'm, Paul says, I'm not writing because of the one who was wrong. Sounds like the father who was wronged. Sounds like he's still alive. But some say the father was dead, as Adam Clark says. James 1 and Brown says, no, the man, the father was still alive and he was wronged. And Paul was worried about him. Adam Clark said, "Some say the father was dead because his honor could be injured, even though he was dead. Well, that's possible. Here's some other options. The one who was wrong was Paul. Adam Clark suggests that. I don't believe that. For that, Paul's talking about that. It just doesn't sound like that. Could be the family of the incestuous person. The one who was wrong would be the the family of the father who who had whose son was shacked up with his wife. With his uh, wife. Could be the family members. I don't think so." I think it was the father. I think he was still alive. And the fact that he was still alive would make the sin even worse. And remember, Paul said even the Gentiles thought it was gross what the man was doing. So that just seems like a grosser sin when the father's still alive. All right, we go to Second Corinthians 7, verse 13. For this reason, we have been comforted. In addition to our comfort, we rejoiced even more over the joy Titus had, because his spirit was refreshed by all of you. For what reason have they been comforted? Because of the, of the repentance and godly sorrow, which... Paul has just mentioned Titus spirit was refreshed i'm going to talk give you a quotation from John Gill as he describes this refreshment because refreshment because John Gill could really explain things with some florid rhetoric quote his spirit was refreshed quote provided for in a liberal manner, treated with all humanity and courteousness. And above all, his mind was eased and filled with an unexpected pleasure to find them, the Corinthians, in such an agreeable frame of mind, so sensible of their neglect of duty, so ready to reform, so united in themselves, so affected to the apostle, and so determined to abide by the order, ordinances, and truths of the gospel against all false teachers." Yeah, Titus was a pretty good mood. He was refreshed. Remember now, Titus had met Paul somewhere in Macedonia, as we have said many times. We don't know where in Macedonia, perhaps Philippi. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 14. For if I have made any boast to him about you, Paul continues, any boast about Titus to you, Corinthians, I have not been embarrassed. But as I have spoken everything to you in truth, so are boasting to Titus. Boasting about you Corinthians to Titus has also turned out to be the truth. Now that's interesting. Paul's boasting about the Corinthian church, the Corinthian church that he just finished excoriating for all their horrible deviations from the straight and narrow. Paul's boasting about these guys. Well, John Gill says here's some of the possibilities of what Paul might have been boasting about: their faith in Christ, perhaps, their liberality to the saints. After all, they they collecting money for the poor saints in Jerusalem, their affection to Paul that Titus has now expressed. Revealed to Paul their obedience to Paul as children to a father. Paul probably was thinking about the good times when he started the church and how great that church was before the trouble hit. So he had boasted to, to Titus he never gave up on the Corinthians despite their horrible sins and their deep spiritual wreckage. Which shows churches can repent; they can shape up. I mean, are you ever get in a bad church situation? Whoo! It's like family problems. There's nothing worse. But there's always hope, and Paul didn't give up on the Corinthians. It's interesting. I found in John Gill's commentary that some people say that the boasting to Titus that turned out to be true, Paul's boasting about the Corinthians to Titus, is really the boasting of Paul to the Corinthians about Titus. In other words, you Corinthians, I've got a great messenger here. His name is Titus. I find that hard to believe that anybody would believe that. I looked. I checked a bunch of English translations. I could find no translations that back that interpretation up so we're going to assume that paul has been boasting to titus at some point because he was close to titus in ephesus at some point and now his boasting has been confirmed and he's right Paul had not only boasted about the Corinthians to Titus, he had boasted about the Corinthians to the Macedonians, 2 Corinthians 9, 2. For I know your eagerness, and I brag about you, I boast about you, to the Macedonians. Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. So the Corinthians were ready to give money, and Paul bragged about them. And that's a good thing, you know, when you got a bunch of sin, a bunch of weak human beings, find something good to say about them, and build up the good not only chastise the evil but try to build up the good because nobody's perfectly evil perfectly screwed up reminds me of a marriage counseling book i saw one time this guy was doing pornography the wife's quite upset about it and rightfully so and uh, <laughs> the, the the person writing the book said well just take the computer and throw it into the into the street well maybe the wife did it without thinking i don't know but the computer ended up in the street Smash. now you know like tend to make somebody upset lose their computer but as soon as she did that she would then write little notes and saying you did a great job helping the kids with the math homework yesterday he johnny little johnny's got a little star from the teaching is real happy thank you for doing that build him up even though he's doing pornography i thought that was great wisdom second corinthians verse fifth verses 15 and 16 will finish up this chapter and his affection towards you, that's Titus' affection towards you, is even greater as he remembers the obedience of all of you. Boy, things are a lot better now in the Corinthian church. And how you received him with fear and trembling, they probably received him with fear and trembling because they knew he came from Paul and they knew that things were not right around here and boy, Titus might be upset. So they received him with fear and trembling, with great humility and respect. The Corinthians didn't, in the end, act And as cocky as a matter as they sounded in 1 Corinthians, they changed. They repented. Paul continues in verse 16, I rejoice that I have complete confidence in you. So he's gone from being madder than a wet hen. He's gone from that to being happy, rejoicing, and completely confident in the Corinthians. Now Paul said in verse 15 that Titus remembered the obedience of all the Corinthians Paul had said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, I write for this purpose to test your character to see if you are obedient in everything. I wrote for this purpose his letter to the First Corinthians. In other words, he's testing them. I want to see if you can be obedient to the truth and to your apostle. I want to see if you can be subject to my admonishments to you, my admonitions to you. I want to see to see if you're going to be obedient. And now he says, yeah, Paul, Titus remembers that obedience. You are obedient. And now I have complete confidence in you. And on that happy note, we have finished Second Corinthians 7. In chapter 8, the first 15 verses in our next audio, we will talk about the poor collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem and how the Corinthians should collect the money. and how. And we'll hear some admonitions about wealth in general in that section. I hope you stay tuned for that audio. And I hope you enjoyed this one.